بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ونبينا ومولانا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته I welcome you to the Isnad Academy I'm your host Malana Irshad Siddiq broadcasting to you live from uh, both the Voice of the Cape platforms as well as the Isnad Academy platforms on YouTube and Facebook as well as VOC 91.3 FM Tonight's episode and discussion, inshallah ta'ala, will be about the Sharia and vaccines. We have uh, amazing guests, alhamdulillah, the Mufti of the Muslim Judicial Council, Mufti Muhammad Taha Karan, as well as uh, Dr. Shamim Jamdulay, who will be joining us shortly, inshallah. So let us officially begin uh, this particular segment of the Isnad Academy talk show, and uh, I will follow it up immediately after this short introduction. Bismillah. Alhamdulillah. So first and foremost, tonight we have two panelists. We were going to have Dr. Salim Parker with us as a standby just to make sure that everything that we discuss pertaining to the Sharia is also in conformity with what we know about medicine. In other words, we want to keep the Sharia experts only discussing that matters that pertain to the Sharia and the medical experts only discussing matters pertaining to medicine. Uh, unfortunately, Dr. Salim cannot be with us this evening. Mashallah, he's, he's taken a break. And uh, the location that he finds himself currently, he doesn't have any signal. But in his stead, Mashallah, we've got our Tuesday night panelist. He was our special guest for, for Tuesday night, and now we have a special appearance uh, from him. And that is none other than Dr. Shamim Jamdule, who is a senior researcher at the UCT Lung Institute. He trained in medical virology as well as immunology. Uh, in which he has his PhD, mashallah, as well as epidemiology. Subhanallah, in normal time, you know, in, in usual um, circumstances, they where they are based, they focus on tuberculosis research. But since the start of the pandemic, they have redirected the efforts towards tackling COVID-19. So we have an actual epidemiologist here. Now, this is a big deal because, and as I was telling someone before, you get doctors and you get, uh, you know, specialists and so on, and they all you know, have a, a, a valid opinion within medicine. But this is someone who specifically worked on the vaccines that we are now speaking about. He worked on the vaccines not since the start of COVID-19, but since the start of the SARS virus a uh, long time ago. But he can tell us about that, inshallah ta'ala. And then, of course, uh, we all know the Mufti of the Muslim Judicial Council, Mufti Muhammad Taha Karan, who also authored a book recently on 40 hadith regarding pandemics and contagion. So I welcome the guests now, inshallah, bearing in mind that the topic again is the Sharia and vaccines. And Dr. Shamim is simply here to make sure that everything we discuss conforms with what we already know about medicine. In other words, that anything that the Sharia and medicine has, you know, as to uh, discuss from two points of view, that the med that the medicinal part, in other words, the the side of medical expertise, is in fact valid. So uh, I will bring both of my guests onto the onto the platform right now, inshallah. Malna Taha, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Ahlan wa sahlan wa marhaban bikum and Dr. Shamim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I do hope and pray that everyone is well, inshallah, and uh, in the kudra and mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we will have a good program this evening where 
the Muslim community can feel that they have actually, uh, you know, received genuine answers from authentic sources pertaining to the vaccines and Islam, because we do want the best for ourselves, not only in this world, but also to make sure that we do not cross any boundaries uh, and meet the consequences thereof when we get to the world hereafter. Uh, this is, of course, uncharted territory for many. Um, and while we have seen pandemics and epidemics in the past, now this was obviously a very new uh, a new area of, of research for yourself and other muftis around the world uh, because we haven't faced something like this in our lifetime. What is the the epistemology? What are the epistemological dimensions that one has to actually go through uh, to get to an answer in something as novel as, you know, the COVID-19 situation and the resultant vaccines that has come from that? وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين. Um, when we speak about the epistemological foundations, I think uh, let's be uh, kind to our listeners and uh, you know, explain the big words that we are using here. Epistemological foundations. I suppose there are many that uh, don't quite know what we are speaking about here. In a nutshell, it means how do we know what we know? How do we know that the information the data and the interpretation of the data that we're basing our, our conclusions on. How do we know that that is correct? Mm. Um, under normal circumstances, you know, an issue comes to us, the issue uh, is it, asking us whether this nikah is valid. It's asking whether a person's salah under certain conditions remain wajib upon him or not. It's asking that if in Hajj I uh, committed this error, what do I do? Or mm. in a buying selling transaction, a certain permutation came about. How does it affect the validity of the contract? In all of those circumstances, we would probably just consider the facts at our disposal and draw a conclusion from there. However, okay. there are times, there are circumstances, there are particular areas in which an alim, a fakir, a mufti cannot possibly depend upon his own store of knowledge alone. This is when we have to judge on intersects and overlaps of other fields. It's no different from law in that regard. A judge is trained in the law. However, there are times when he has to give a judgment that pertains to a field uh, of medicine. There are times when it uh, pertains to certain other fields of, uh, of science. So in those circumstances, he will be forced to rely upon uh, information, expert evidence uh, that will be supplied to him somehow or the other. Um, that goes without saying. We know that we have to depend upon uh, learning on knowledge, upon sources, upon informants, other than just those that have studied the field that we ourselves have studied. Uh, the Sharia has an answer, uh, and Allah Ta'ala has a hukum, Allah Ta'ala has a law on just about every possible uh, exigency that can come about. No matter what happens, there is a hukum from Allah Ta'ala's side that says this, that says this is uh, obligatory, or it is not, or it is permissible, or it is not permissible. However, to arrive at that, we often have to leverage of the expertise of people other than ourselves. So when we have to leverage of the expertise of others, the question uh, that then arises is, whose view do we trust? So it's one of two situations, theoretically one of two of situations. Either all the experts in a particular field agree. There is consensus, what we the Fuqaha would term an ijma. Everyone agrees. In that case, I have no option. I have to follow the consensus of the experts on that issue. And there comes a time when a divergence of opinion also happens to come about. Hmm. So 
that seems to be the type of situation that we ourselves are in at this moment in time. So let's uh, interpret the divergence of opinion that we have here. What we're actually having is a bifurcation of opinion. There are two sides here. One side consisting of medical experts. We have doctors. We have, uh, uh, shall I say, specialists. We have people such as uh, Dr. Shamim, who have spent many, many years researching these fields, have gone far beyond you and I at this stage in our lives can even think of doing. And uh, then on the other hand, we find people that, for lack of a better term, um, I will probably call them for this moment amateurs, non-doctors. Rather, let's say non-doctors because the term amateur might be taken with uh, a, a pinch of salt or might be, even be interpreted to be insulting. So we have doctors and then we have non-doctors. Um, when an alim is faced with a situation where he has to depend upon either the doctor or the non-doctor, what does he do? Well, he's going to do the same thing that he does when he needs to get his car fixed and he can either take it to the plumber or to the mechanic. Hmm. If he's between the plumber and the mechanic, he has no choice but go to the mechanic. He's got to have his car fixed. So under our circumstances, what has to happen, you have to go where the expertise exists. You are not allowed in Sharia. You are not allowed to take evidence, to take uh, expert uh, advice from someone who is not qualified in the field. This is not something which we suck from our thumbs. This is what our Nabi wasallam teaches us. And it so happens that the hadith in which Nabi wasallam teaches us that happens to overlap, happens to exist within the field of medicine. Rasulullah wasallam says, Man taqabbada walam yu'lam minhu tibbun fahuwa dhami. Man taqabbada, that's a very interesting word here. Taqabbada means someone who dabbles in medicine. He's not, a, he's, he's not a medical professional, he's not a physician, he's not a doctor, but he dabbles in medicine, and he was not known prior to that to have medical expertise, he holds liability for whatever happens from that point on. If that person dies, he is liable. Well, I've said you would know that uh, in interpreting the text of the Sharia, we have something called a mafhumul mukhalafa, an inference of the opposite. Let's take this hadith. What does this hadith say? This hadith says that you have to use expert, or rather the hadith says you cannot rely upon the non-expert. By the same token, what I'm actually saying, that you have to rely upon the expert, and the expert when he's given his best opinion, and the worst happens thereafter. In other words, the expert has done the best that he can. But we know that things are in the hands of Allah. Even mm-hmm. when the best experts have given us their opinion, it could still go the other way. It happens every day. People right now are being treated in hospital, and some of them succumb to it. So uh, the powers of the physician are not the powers of the creator. So what happens if the expert has given his best treatment and then still the person dies? This hadith teaches us via the influence of the opposite that that tabib, that doctor holds no liability for that. This has been, in fact, one of the questions that were asked of us once upon a time that, you know, we are saying that uh, by all means take the vaccines. Will we take liability for those that might die when the vaccines happen? May that never happen. Um, That seems to be premised upon the idea that uh, when medicine is prescribed and something bad happens and the one who prescribed the medicine is definitely liable. No, th- that is not the way the Fukuhai have written it. The way the Fukuhai have written it is that when a doctor who is known to be a doctor, who is known to be a doctor, gives his best opinion and things still go wrong, he bears no liability. But the person mm-hmm. who is not an expert, he gives his opinion, in that case, he will carry liability. For it. This is the hadith. Let's take the hadith back to the Quran. The Sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Somehow we have to read back to the Quran again. In uh, you know we all know the ayah which Allah Taala says, 
أفلا يتدبرون القرآن ولو كان من عند غير الله لوجدوا في اختلاف كثيرة Our first source of guidance is the Quran and Allah Ta'ala says أفلا يتدبر Don't they ponder the Quran ولو كان من عند Had it been from one other than Allah you will find a lot of difference in it I'm not concerned so much with that ayah right now I said let's look at the ayah that follows it The ayah that follows it is وَإِذَا جَاءَهُمْ أَمْرٌ مِّنَ الْأَمْنِ أَوِ الْخَوْفِ أَذَاعُوا بِهِ When it comes to them, and this is the description of the munafiqin, of the hypocrites in the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When they come to them, a matter of safety or fear. أَمْرٌ مِّنَ الْأَمْنِ أَوِ الْخَوْفِ Safety or fear. Can you see the parallels with the situation that we find ourselves in? Safety and fear. Something comes about, look at what Allah Ta'ala says the munafiqin do. أَذَاعُوا بِهِ They spread it around. They spread matters of fear. They spread it in the community. Spreading fear in the community. Allah Ta'ala tells us, what are you supposed to do in a case such as that? If they only took that matter back to Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But remember, Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is not always going to be with us. The time will come when he's no longer there. And they take it back to those who are in command amongst them. Those who have the expertise amongst them. لَعَلِمَهُ الَّذِينَ يَسْتَنْبِطُونَهُ Those who can draw proper conclusions, those who are able to investigate it, they will say what the proper cause of action is. So yeah, Rasulullah, Allah Ta'ala tells us that you have to take it back to the proper source. الَّذِينَ يَسْتَنْبِطُونَهُ In every field there's going to be someone different. The ayah came down in the case of war. In the case of war, you wouldn't go and ask Abdullah ibn Masud, you would go and ask Khalid ibn Walid. He was the expert in that. And it's a matter of fiqh, you go to Abdullah ibn Masud. The matter in which we find ourselves, it's a matter of medical experts versus non-medical experts. Therefore, we are bound, in light of this ayah, in light of that hadith, we are bound to go where the expert evidence lies. I'm not finished, however. Because not all doctors are on the same uh, uh, page on this one here. Mm. So we find doctors saying one thing and we find doctors saying another thing. So how do we know that we can trust? How do we know we can trust the opinion that we have decided to trust? How do we know that? Uh, the one thing that we know is that... Uh, the bulk of the doctors that they are, the bulk of the doctors that we speak to. And let's make it clear. Let's make it clear. Unlike what people tend to think, we speak to one doctor and two doctors. Oh, we spoke to Zamir. Zamir is like this. And we speak to Salim and Salim is like that. No, this is not a case of one or two or three doctors. Just about every doctor that we've spoken to, the entire, I'd say the entire Islamic Medical Association have put their weight firmly behind vaccinations. This is not the South African uh, Islamic Medical Association only. This goes for the British Medical Association. Uh, this goes for doctors in other parts of the world. There will always be in every field, there will be a fringe. There will be a fringe. However, when we have to decide where we place our reliance, we place our reliance on the basis of two factors. Number one, where do the majority stand? And secondly, how, what do we know about those people who form the majority? Do we know to them to be people of integrity? Do we know them to be pe people who are willing to sell out their deen and sell out their careers and sell out the honor of being a, a physician and sell out the entire humanity and life on earth as we know it for uh, you know a few million rands? Is that even conceivable? The one who thinks that is possible. I think people who think this is possible that not one, not two, Hundreds, if not thousands, of Muslim doctors, conscientious Muslims, are, are all echoing the same thought. To think that you know all of those people are being paid by the same man, and they, they do not have the least bit of shame, uh, you know, to carry out uh, the, the, the dictates of the Hippocratic oath that they might have taken, or any other oath that they might have taken, 
and it 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 just stretches the credulity between beyond anything that one can imagine. Often, mm. I think uh, ideas such as this are based upon, and this might come across as a bit nasty, but I think people judge mm. by their own standards. A person judges someone else as you know you are willing to take money. Why does he say that? Possibly because you yourself are willing to take money for something. Is that why you judge others by the same standard? The people that we have worked with, and they are not one, they are dozens upon dozens of doctors, people of the highest level of integrity, people who have the respect of their fellow uh, uh, physicians, people who have reached the highest levels in their various fields. These are the people that have been informing us and our personal knowledge of these people show that we can trust them. This is why when we, when we find doctors who are saying yes and doctors who are saying no, we place our reliance with those uh, in whom we have that confidence. This is the epistemological background upon which we have come to the position where we are. From this point onwards, I think now we can get into all the nitty-gritty. But with this background, this is an important background to understand. Once we've understood that background, let's now go into the rest. Now, Jazakumullah Khairan, uh, that is very insightful, Molina. And of course, yes, we will come back to the question of who exactly was consulted in this process and so on. But the first question on the list tonight is that there is a claim that this pandemic is not like smallpox. It's not like the plague. I've heard these sentiments myself, and I know Molina has as well, that uh, it's different. So one cannot make qiyas on something because there's a clear difference between them. Uh, what's Molina's thoughts on this? And perhaps you can get Dr. Shamim's insight as well in terms of the effects of this, inshallah. Um, yeah, I'm going to be speaking as a layman. And it's very clear, it must be clear. Where I, I know, I will speak. Where I don't know, I will defer. So as far as this matter is concerned, we know we have had a number of ed epidemics in the past. And we know that the one thing that managed to eradicate diseases of this nature, we know, what is it? It has been vaccines. Beyond that, we also know that in the past, when we had vaccines, whether for smallpox, whether for polio, for all of mm -hmm. those things, when our ulama of the time, people of the level of people of the level of people of the level of our Ustad Mufti Mahmoud Hassan Ganguhi, they fatawa on record. They gave fatawa of the permissibility of all of this. We ha also have in front of us the uh, success rate of uh, 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 the manner in which vaccines manage to eradicate certain diseases. So when I, as a layman in this regard, look at the matter, when I look at it, I say, well, this worked in the past, vaccines worked in the past, and vac vaccine technology, which started from very, uh, what was it called, variolation in the old days, and then became inoculation, uh, and then became uh, uh, the type of, uh, what do we call it now, the technologies that we see today, which are mm. uh, so much safer than what we had once upon a time, uh, when I look at it, I consult the doctors and they give me the assurances, then I trust that. But I think the best person to answer the question is Dr. Shamim. To what extent mm. can we actually compare and uh, yes, to which uh, can we uh, equate? Yes, make, that, make the comparison. Now, uh, added to that, Dr. Shamim, uh, your, your, your comments briefly on that, as well as, you know, the, people are specifically saying this because of the statistics. They are saying that, look, if you look at the mortality rate, you know, then, uh, and I don't know the mortality rate, but uh, people are saying that, you know, it, it's, it's such a small percentage that they liken it to the flu, for example, or they say it's just slightly higher than the flu. Uh, can you give us some proper insights into, into the reality of this? In, in, do you think it's a fair comparison to make a pandemic of this nature to something like the plague or smallpox? Bismillah. 
yeah, so uh, let's start with the, the the causative agent of each of the pandemics that we that Molana has mentioned, for example. I mean, let's take it uh, from far back in time to more recently. Uh, before we had the bubonic plague, uh, we had smallpox. And when you think of the uh, etiological agent, as we call it uh, in our scientific jargon, or, or more, uh, you know, commonly the causative agent for these uh, infections, they are of a different nature. They, their mode of spread is of a different nature. And that is the key uh, where we cannot actually make any form of comparison, you know. Uh, those diseases were normally uh, by contact, whereas mm -hmm. right now we are dealing with something that is much more transmissible because it's airborne, uh, because uh, we cannot actually uh, know uh, who is infected because as we know it now uh, over the year that we've dealt with COVID-19, uh, around 80% of people who have it will stay asymptomatic. So what wow. you have in the case of COVID-19 are silent spreaders, which is mm. normally not the case in uh, diseases like cholera, the bubonic plague, uh, or even HIV for that matter, because right now we have a lot of testing. And you know, when you have HIV and you're not on treatment, you will develop disease at some stage. Mm. So you will be made aware of your status. Uh, and just to give you an indication of how uh, different the, the mode of spread is, um, I'll take the example of HIV. Uh, we've had more than 40 million people uh, infected uh, with HIV around three decades after we've discovered the virus. It took mm. less than a year to reach the 40 million cases mark for COVID-19. That's how much faster it spread. And to draw analogies to a more recent epidemic, like Ebola, for example, why did Ebola not polarize as much attention as COVID-19 is uh, right now? It's simply because of the global uh, nature of the disease. And now we live in a global world and a global village where people travel so easily, so frequently. And yalla, in the space of a month from uh, this pandemic and this epidemic uh, at uh, as it started, it, it took a month for it to spread on all continents and in almost uh, every country, you know, uh, once it was identified as being something that's going global. Uh, now to touch on your last point, Molana, which is the, the why should we, why should we uh, not worry? Because, you know, it's only like an insignificant uh, part of uh, people who get infected who will be, uh, who, who will be uh, affected or who will die from that. So let me give you the statistics. One percent of people who get infected with uh, the, the, the virus are at risk of death. Four percent of these people are at risk of developing very severe disease that will require mm. them to be hospitalized. Uh, and a lot of them will go on ventilation. And the, the sequelae, the, the repercussion of the damages that COVID-19 causes in the body some people think it's only respiratory diseases, right, but it's systemic. Right. It affects your kidneys, it affects your heart, it affects your uh, gastrointestinal system, your stomach. Uh, and, and we still see people who were infected and were hospitalized in April, that's close to 10 months now, who can still not do their normal activities. So there is much more uh, 
people than you know uh, that than, than than a lot of people believe uh, who are actually incapacitated and affected by this. And you know the purpose of vaccine is to protect the vulnerable. Uh, you know it's to prevent the spread. Yes, it's to prevent mm. disease in general. But right now the most important target that we have for vaccination is to protect these one percent of people who will be infected and who are at risk of death from this mm. disease. And uh, it's not right to make comparison with the normal seasonal flu because uh, four less people die from that. Uh, that has been mm. uh, clarified with scientific evidence already. Okay, Jazakumul Khair. And I also find it a bit strange that people make statements such as it's only, you know, so many people who will die from it. Or it's only such a percentage of people who will die. I mean, if a life can be saved, subhanAllah, it, it, it's, it's a bit puzzling. Um, Monona, uh, just to clarify, one of the, one of the listeners uh, has asked the question, and this has been discussed previously, so I, I'll just reiterate this. The question as to the permissibility of vaccines, Monna has answered that previously. It is permissible because this person was looking for a simple answer. Tonight, we're actually looking at the details as to the why and the how. So uh, that's just to clarify on that point there. Um, with regards to the Sharia, is there a difference between how the Sharia views vaccines and medicinal treatments uh, obviously medicinal treatments is something that you take as you know quote unquote a cure a medicine that you take after you've actually acquired a, a disease but a vaccine is something that you would take um, to prevent even getting that disease so would that be considered the same or different in the sharia manner uh, it's considered no different sometimes the fuqaha differentiate between the two when they con uh, when they contain very, very objectionable substances. But let's look at uh, prospective uh, prevention of, of, uh, of disease. Rasulullah speaks about If every morning you eat seven dates of the dates of Medina, then you'll be safe from this, that, and the other disease. In other words, what are you doing? You're taking something preventatively so that the disease doesn't come at all. Um, I've seen some of the fatawa in this figure where they differentiate along those lines and they say that if they are objectionable substances, then you can take it for curative purposes, which is where you are already affected. Uh, uh, but when you are not yet affected, then you cannot take it. Under normal circumstances, when it is something that might affect one or two persons, it's one thing. But the moment something becomes global, the moment it becomes common, common is just in our society, but it becomes global, then we know that the Sharia changes the approach that it takes to something which is uh, at the global uh, level uh, and, and something that's at the local and the personal level. Then the rules mm. change in that regard. You know, uh, we have different levels of, uh, of need. We have an absolute need which is a darura. And then you have a second tier need where you have some viable alternatives. It's not necessary that you have to, uh, that this is the only option that you have. However, when the second tier need becomes common, public and global, then it gets treated like a first genie. And the, 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 the shawahid and the indication of this from, from the sharia are more than one can throw a stick at, at, at this moment in time. So uh, essentially, coming back to your question, is there a difference between the two? At this level, with a disease of this nature, there's absolutely no difference between the two. Uh, then is the age-old question of medicinal ingredients. Now, we have touched on this before, but I think we, we did not allow Molina a sufficient space to actually answer the question. But some medicinal ingredients are such that under normal circumstances, they would be impermissible for a, for a believer to consume, such as alcohol, you know, ethanol and the like. Um, there are others as well, but in relation to substances such as these, what do what do we do and how do we view this when it comes to medicines like vaccines 
you know, are there exceptions to the rule and why are there exceptions to the rule? The first thing we do is we step back and reorientate ourselves and understand the surroundings and the issue at stake. Uh, mm. This is not something recreational. This is not something I'm asking, can I eat uh, uh, yogurt with uh, forcing gelatin in it? This mm. is not to ask, can I wear something that's made of big skin or something? No. There are different levels of needs in society. And at the top of the, of the various, uh, or rather, let's say the, the pyramid of needs, the preservation of life is the most important one there. So what happens is that Allah Ta'ala tells us that You made mention just now of saving a single life. Look at how, what, what importance the Quran attaches to it. It doesn't mm. say, okay, lose a few people to the seasonal flow and it's fine. No, it says save one life and it is as if you have saved all of mankind. That is the sanctity of life. So in response to such a situation, the Sharia, which is normally very, very sensitive about harmful substances, which is normally very, very sensitive about impure substances, which is normally even sensitive about doubtful substances. But when it comes to the matter of saving a life, the Sharia itself opens up its sensitivities in this regard. So under normal circumstances, you cannot go about drinking the urine of a camel. No one did it in Medina Munawara. It wasn't part of the staple food. But when a group of people in Medina Munawara from the tribe of the Orena came to Medina and they started suffering from a fever, Rasulullah directed them, go and drink of the urine of the camels. It's not normally done. Why would you do it? Because this is exactly what the Sharia does. When the need arises, then the doors that are normally kept closed are then opened. Why is it done? For the preservation of health. Because the preservation of health means the preservation of life. That's why it is done. The fuqaha have looked at all uh, at a number of things. I, I find it strange that people harp upon the ethanol element because ethanol is present. It's, 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 it's almost omnipresent around us to the, the extent to which it is used as a solvent in so many of the things that uh, that we use on an everyday basis. I sit with a pen and I write I, uh, I, uh, on this piece of paper in front of me. There is ink. That ink, uh, you know, it doesn't uh, occur naturally in nature. Nice. It is a composition which needs a, uh, a solvent and we put it together uh, and we have this as a solvent ethanol. Muslim chemists were the first to discover the use of ethanol as a solvent and especially in the field of medicines and therefore the fuqaha responded. The jurists of Islam responded and said that can you or can you not use khamar? Now the khamar that we're speaking of here now is actual wine itself, not the distilled one where the ethanol is still distilled out of the wine. It is not pure ethanol, it's ethanol that exists in khamar. So they said, there you can use it. You can use it there as a solvent, provided certain conditions are met. Those conditions are that it should be a minuscule uh, quantity that has secondly become obliterated. Thirdly, the efficacy of it must be proved. And we need the testimony of at least two Muslim doctors to say that it works and there should be no alternatives. So when those things are in place, then Bismillah, the Sharia is set. And this is something that comes from about 500 to 1,000 years ago. It wasn't invented today. These rules have been in place all along. We do it on a daily basis. How many of our people do not use what we call them Hollands, uh, Dutch remedies? Mm. These mm. Dutch remedies, uh, you don't have to look very far. Just look on the bottle itself and see the extent Super intoxicating. Of, uh, super intoxicating, precisely. Then we have something called, and many people will realize, Jaksamur, Doksamur. <laughs> no, uh, I don't mean to. But people have been 16% alcohol, 16% in container and people were using it. That's far beyond the limit that uh, the Sharia allows. I mean, they say beer only has about 4 or 5%, and Jaksamur had about 16%, and people were using it. And they didn't ask the question, why? Because it relieves your arthritis. 
we're not even speaking about arthritis. We are speaking about saving lives. Do we even need to speak about saving lives when, you know, uh, potentially saving lives when you've seen 50,000 people die in our own country? I don't think there's a single person that hasn't lost someone close to me. You know, a few weeks ago, I was speaking to my friends and we were saying, it's hitting closer and closer all the time. It's hitting closer and closer. And then suddenly it hit very, very close. And who knows? We are sitting here right now. Who knows where it might hit next? Who knows who Allah might choose to take next? Hmm. So lives are, lives are being lost on a daily basis. Alhamdulillah, the death rate has come down. But it hasn't completely ceased. Lives still need to be saved. The questions that we didn't ask back then were the Dutch remedies and with Jaksamur and Doksamur every day. Suddenly, we are harping on those questions as if life depends upon avoiding that extremely minuscule amount of 0.003% of alcohol. That's, uh, and, and, and knowing that at the same time, I'm, I'm probably consuming more alcohol in my fruit juice. And then we're becoming facetious about the side of things. Yes, we go on to the next one. Which is the next one now? The next objectionable one is forcing gelatin. Forcing hmm. gelatin is said to be, uh, and, and doctor will be able to guide us correctly on this one, but I think only the, the Chinese one, Sinopharm or Sinovac, are said to contain some uh, porcine gelatin or something. Fortunately, that's not the one on the market yet. We don't know what's going to come. An important thing to note here is that, um, and Dr. Shamim has remarked this to me several times over, we are learning on a daily basis in real time. Things are changing overnight. We saw what happened to the AstraZeneca. Uh, we thought that would be the one that would be rolled out. And suddenly a game changer came along and it had to be changed to something else on account of the resistance of the, uh, the South African variant. So these are things which happen in real time and decisions need to be taken. Therefore, when we say that we are in favor of vaccines, that's in general. That is in principle. When it comes to the specific one, more information will be made available as and when it becomes available. But back to the question. The question is, if something contains false ingenuity, once again, this is not new. This is not new because not too long ago, I know uh, we had to give a fatwa from the NGC side on measles. And then measles, you have the one that you can actually go and buy and pay a thousand rands for a child or something like that. And then you have a common person in the street that only had to use the one that the government had to offer. And that one contained porcine gelatin. So is porcine gelatin exactly the same as a, a slab of pork that you put in the plate and offer to someone to eat? Well, it's not the same. What has happened there? Quite a bit of uh, uh, metamorphic change has taken place in it to bring it to the state which is now. The collagen was extracted extracted from the body and from there it was, it went through two and three and four different processes uh, until it became what we know now as as uh, 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 as gelatin. So many fuqaha of the Hanafi madhab, of the Hanbali madhab are of the opinion that that constitutes a valid form of istihala or tabdilun It has changed sufficiently to an extent that it's no longer the original. This is not something that is by consensus in fact. But when we face situations such as the one which we are in right now, where people are dying, it's no longer, you know, we are no longer in February last year. We are in February of this year. Since February last year to February this year, 50,000 people have died. Let's not, let's not forget that. When we consider that, then we ask ourselves, is it really that important to harp upon something which is arguably acceptable, arguably halal, arguably might save a life or not? That's forcing gelatin. We didn't make the noise when, uh, uh, for other, uh, elsewhere. We're making the noise here when the need is so much higher. Uh, those are three things that we went through. Ethanol, we mentioned uh, forcing gelatin. Uh, we come to the next one now, and that's, I think, the issue of cell lines. The cell lines, uh, it is often mentioned in this regard here that there's human cells that, are, that somehow or the other are connected or conflated or, uh, 
you know, inside of uh, the, the, the vaccines. Um, at the risk of, I don't think I need to say at the risk of being corrected by the doctor because we've thrashed these issues out. The vaccine as it is contains no human cells whatsoever. Uh, no human cells whatsoever. However, that does not mean that there were no human cells ever used in the entire process. Human cells were used in two stages, and that was one in production and thereafter in testing. Now, which are those human cells? Back in the 70s, I think it was, that uh, a fetus was aborted. From that aborted fetus, uh, some kidney cells were extracted. From that, those kidney cells, uh, what happened then, they were cloned in a lab. They were cloned in a lab, and from there we've had what is called immortal cell lines. They continue, from what I've read, I think every 36 hours you have a new set of them. So they've continued for years, how many years, 40 years now, continuously producing, reproducing. What they provide is good testing material uh, for for viruses that will invade a human body. Viruses that know what a human body is like, and therefore they need to go within a human culture. So the question around that is, uh, was that permissible to have originally taken those cells from that, uh, that, that, that fetus and use it in this way and clone it in this manner? Now, the time when I was a student overseas, I'm speaking about now uh, the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. During those days, I think many of us will remember Dolly the clone sheep. When Dolly the sheep was cloned, then that was the talk of the town. And every Daraliftan, every Mufti was sitting with a question of, is it permissible to clone or is it not permissible to clone? That was the matter that has been taught in the, in the fifth classes. Uh, that was the matter that was being given fatwa on uh, uh, in the Daraliftas. And it, it was, the, what do we say now, that was the talk of the town. So by 1997, the Islamic Fit, International Islamic Fit Academy uh, held a conference. After this conference, a resolution was uh, was passed. And that resolution is what was called resolution number 92. And uh, that resolution makes it very clear that human cloning is not permitted. When you speak of human cloning is not permitted, you cannot clone an entire human being. That will not. You, in others, you cannot have a human equivalent of Dolly the clone sheep. That will not be allowed. This is not just the Muslim thing. Many governments also at that time put a moratorium on this type of of research. We will not have the cloning of entire human beings. However, clause four, clause four of resolution 92 of the Islamic Faith Academy 1997 states one point, a very important point, and I will introduce it by saying therapeutic cloning. Therapeutic cloning will be cases where cloning of human cells happen in order to improve the health and save the lives of humans themselves. In other words, those cells will be used to better uh, in order to bring about better treatments, those cells will be used to create better treatments for the illnesses from which we suffer, be it HIV, be it uh, rubella, be it mumps, be it um, tuberculosis, all of those things. We need to test it within a human culture. We need to grow it within a human culture, and those cells will, will serve the purpose thereof. Those cells, first of all, they were taken from a, 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 a fetus prior to ensoulment, prior to the roof being blown into it, and arguably, when I say arguably, it's a reference to the fact that the Fukaha will differ around this thing. There's a difference of opinion amongst the scholars, but a fair percentage of them believe that prior to ensoulment, uh, the fetus is not fully human in the sense that you will say that it is the death of a child. The Catholic Church makes, uh, you know, a big hue uh, and cry. The Catholic Church makes a big hue and cry about uh, uh, fetuses being aborted. Uh, and I'm going to take a chance here and say, um, you know, they don't do the same when children are being, living children are being abused. 
But let's leave that aside. That was just a stab by the side. However, the Catholic Church makes a hue and cry about it. We don't make that hue and cry. We make our hue and cry in light of our Sharia, in light of opinions of the Fuqaha uh, that have been with us for a thousand years and more. So, in terms of the origin, you know, if someone is asked, I'm asked to give some of my blood to someone else that might help him save his life. I do that without uh, compunction. I give that uh, and uh, we don't have a problem there with. So here it is a matter of those cells were taken and they were then cloned. And uh, the cloned cells, not the original human cells, there's no soul involved here. It is cells that resemble a human cell in every respect, but they are not uh, the same. They are not the, the cells of that very same aborted fetus. They are cloned from there. So, for example, if someone takes cells of mine and they clone it and they create another person, that person is not I. It will not happen, inshallah. So that is where the cell lines come from. Having said that, now the cell lines, what happens to it? When they need to grow this virus, which they will then use to protect you and give immunity to me and you, that needs to grow within a human cell. Best uh, place for it to grow is in a human cell. And they grow it in those human cells. Then at a certain stage, what happens? All of the human cells are dissolved out of the uh, solution completely, chemically, and I think it is done with an extremely high degree of chemical precision, that not a single trace of the original uh, cloned human cell, I won't call it a human cell, say a cloned human cell, none of that remains whatsoever. Now you have the pure vaccine itself with no human cells in it. Now that needs to be tested thereafter. And uh, I really take off my hat for the level of tests the level of validation, the level of checks and balances and peer review that happens in this regard. I believe that there is not a single type of medication that is put to the test of vaccination uh, vaccines. Um, Dr. Shamim has, has, has shared some uh, you know, information with me that just gives an idea and you stand back and you say, subhanAllah, is it mm. to this extent that we will go? Will we go to this extent to make sure? You know, and information becomes available in real time. In real time, the last test that was done that showed the 22 or 23 percent of AstraZeneca, that happened in real time. It was being done, so to say, as we speak. And another important facet to consider. Uh, uh, then Malana, if I can just uh, cut in, sorry, I'm really sorry for this, but uh, we are going to be losing our listeners on 91.3 FM in about one minute. So for anyone who is listening on 91.3 FM Voice of the Cape, our broadcasting partner in this program, I would like to invite you to come and join us still on the Isnad Academy platforms as well as on the Voice of the Cape Facebook page. So you can go over to YouTube and uh, search for Isnad Academy. Do subscribe to the channel so that you are notified of the future programs and there will be some very interesting ones coming up inshallah. Or you can just head over to, the, to your Facebook page and search for the Voice of the Cape uh, Facebook platform and listen to the program further on there inshallah. I'm sure the Voice of the Cape will repeat this program uh, at, at least the, the rest of it at another time. So Jazakumullah khairan for joining us on A and uh, we bid you farewell for your next program on the radio inshallah. Molina, I'm again very sorry for that. Uh, Bismillah. Oh, that's fine. I know that I'm becoming very long drader now, but uh, these are functions. No, no, no. You have to trash them out and say them to the fullest extent of detail. So where was I? The, the level of checks and balances are done. Sometimes it is done by way of computer model. You put in a computer and say, what might this thing possibly do? Then you have where those same original human clone cells, they will be used as test subjects to see how will the cell respond to those. Then animal tests are also done. And then I believe, Doctor, three phases of, uh, of human testing and all of them open and peer-reviewed. And uh, with placebos, with checks, with controls and all of those things. So that's the second place I was a bit losing myself. I come back to the point. That's the second stage where 
human cells are used as well. And that has nothing to do with what the, what, what the, the vaccine contains. It is tested, uh, the vaccine is tested on it, but it doesn't form part of the vaccine. So those are the type of, um, what do we call, objectionable, supposedly, or potentially objectionable substances that things do contain. I'd like uh, Dr. Shamin to speak something about the adenovirus and maybe a few other things like that. Those are things that we cannot speak about. People have misgivings about them. And they have ideas that, you know, it will cause this kind of immunodeficiencies or uh, illnesses. Those are not things that I can speak about. Doctor will speak about them. Yes, I think Molana did a really great job to cover uh, uh, the point that he, that he, that he, that he wanted to, go, to pause through. Uh, just want to provide a little bit of clarity uh, on, on, on a few of the points that Molana made. Uh, one of which is the use of alcohol, as Molana mentioned, uh, being a solvent. Uh, and that's the only purpose, obviously, of it being in the vaccine. Uh, and remember that there are uh, different types of systems used in vaccine now. That's going to bring me to the last question uh, that, uh, that, that Molana City crossed. Uh, so we, we, we use uh, alcohol, uh, a specific alcohol in the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, for example, because the, the vaccine is DNA-based, okay? And, and DNA is, the, is, is best dissolved when you use that specific alcohol. Now the mRNA that is being used in uh, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, for example, uh, that's different. The, the, the solvent that you require for that is a different solvent, for example, polyethylene glycol or, or any other solvent. And when you do uh, uh, your, your, your basic science uh, at like very uh, basic level, undergraduate level, you know that, for example, uh, protein will be precipitated in, uh, in, 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 in chloroform, your uh, DNA will be precipitated in uh, isopropanol and your mRNA will be precipitated in, uh, uh, or your RNA will be precipitated in, uh, in ethanol. Uh, and, and these are things that, uh, that, uh, that are reasons why we have this specific element in the vaccine. Uh, and uh, now to go to the, 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 the actual system of the vaccine itself and the, the, the cells that Molana was mentioning about. And I think Molana, I, I need to make a, a very important distinction between uh, what you referred to clone as those cells, uh, what we normally call a clone. And I think uh, it doesn't only apply to cell, but now it applies to, you know, devices. When you watch movies or, you know, like series, you will hear uh, about people cloning food, which is basically duplicating a phone that is similar to another one and, and you can use it on both ends, right? So this is the, 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 the one definition of the word clone something being similar. Now, within our body, for example, our heart cell, our muscle cell, our brain cell, they all look alike. So I can say that they are all cloned because they look alike, they don't differ. They will differ, for example, in your immune system where you have your B cell, your T cell, but those T cells are like mostly all cloned. Your muscle cells are clones. So they all look alike, uh, one of the same type or all going to be cloned, right? Now, the cloning that Molana mentioned about the sheep, for example, that's different. That was taking the nucleus from the cell of the mother and implanting that into an egg from the mother that would normally need to be fertilized by sperm to create a new being, right? So the cloning that Dodi underwent to, uh, to, 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 to give rise to itself, 
is very different to the term cloning that we're using for the cells. We use the term clones for the cells because they're all similar, not because they've undergone the process of cloning uh, that give rise to a similar being, uh, in a similar full being, if I can put it this way. And Molana is right about the cells that we're using right now for vaccine production not being the same cells that we extracted and we isolated from that aborted fetus in 1973, which is the exact year when it happened. The reason why we have these cells right now is because they go through a process of replication, which we call passaging. One cell gives rise to two cells. Those two cells will give rise to four cells. Those four cells will give rise to 16 cells and so on. Every cell is going to have the potential of giving rise to two more cells because that's the way cell division works. So the cells that we're using now everywhere around the world, they all come from the same source, but they've been passed billions of times until we have what we have now. Now I want to touch on the reason why we're using these cells from a fetus. Why do we not use a, a heart cell? Why don't we use a muscle cell? Uh, the reason why we use cells from the fetus is because it is what we call the stem cells. Stem cells have two very important uh, distinctions to your other normal cells in your body. The first one is that they have the ability to, uh, to, to, to actually transform into any other type of cell. Okay, That's one piece of magic that they have. For example, your heart cell cannot magically become a lung cell just because you need more lung cells, right? These cells are specialized cells, uh, actually are unspecialized cells that have the potential to specialize. And the second feature that they have, which makes them very, very, very valuable compared to normal cells, is that they lack a normal function in every cell, be it a human cell, an animal cell, a plant cell is what we call program cell death. After a number of replication of that cell, it will die. This function in the stem cell is normally switched off. So this means that we can use that cell to make the vaccine, which is the main reason why we use the cell, because it has the potential to undergo a lot of replication therefore increasing our capacity to make more vaccine before it dies. It actually gives you a production capacity that is seven times greater than what a normal cell will give you. So now why did we use a fetus to isolate that cell? Because this is the only place where we can get these types of cells that was known at that time. Eventually, we got to know that we also have them in the bone marrow. We could take a lumbar puncture, get a bone marrow sample, extract these cells and use them. But then again, the permissibility, the shoya, uh, you know, uh, 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 permissibility of that, I, I, I don't know. You know, I, I can't pronounce uh, uh, on this. That would be something that Molana will have to do. But now, for example, what we can also do is we can look at other sources that are you know, uh, make people more comfortable. If people are uncomfortable with, for example, uh, the fact that this a fetus was an aborted fetus, right now we know with the progress in technology and science, we know that these types of cells can also be obtained from placenta. 
and placenta or uh, parts of you know your 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 your, your uh, what what grows with your baby and that holds your baby and that feeds your baby and oxygenate your baby uh, in in gestation the fetus and the embryo uh, this is uh, released with the baby at birth and this would probably represent a more comfortable source of these cells in the future for this but then again. These are avenues that Islamic scholars, maybe, you know, with more of an incline on that from countries like Saudi Arabia could, could actually investigate uh, if it means that, you know, it makes people more comfortable from an Islamic perspective. Uh, but then again, the reason why we use, and that's my, my final word on that, we use these cells is because they have been tested and used and trusted for over 40 years years right now we cannot just move to another cell to uh, you know make uh, make make the production of the vaccine and i'm sure if we do use something else that people won't have an issue with they will find an issue with it they will tell you that there is no evidence that it's right so uh, as as molana mentioned we are living in a in a in a in a, in a very critical situation right now uh, and things are constantly evolving that's why we call this disease an emerging epidemic because it's new and we are still studying it. Subhanallah, Dr. Shamim, I teach an Akida class um, for a, a particular school here in the second year level. I would like you to teach that Akida class and I'll sit in the class because uh, the level of, of, of increase that I would experience in terms of Iman just by listening to this intricate uh, science that, you know, just reveals how great Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is uh, will just Subhanallah, I don't, I don't even know how to express it, but it will really just blow my my head off, you know, because it, it's so mind blowing, uh, mind boggling that that this is just a little bit of technology that Allah had allowed us to attain. Imagine what we don't know, you know, and it, it's you know to have somebody such as yourself in our community uh, doing this work, uh, you know, may Allah increase you and uh, uh, you know allow the, the world to benefit at the hands of the, of the likes of you. I mean, uh, Maulana, uh, back over to yourself now, inshallah. After all that science talk, you have to get back to the Sharia talk. Um, unfortunately, this is a question that still gets asked. I'm not sure why, but I, th I felt, you know, it's fair, let's address it. Um, when formulating a ruling on vaccines and similar novel medical matters, uh, do you only consult the literature of one madhab and why? In general terms, everything starts from the, within the precincts of one madhab. Um, when that madhab provides whatever we, we require, whatever the mufti requires, and he gives him the answer, then he gives the answer from that one madhab, or from that one madhab and he doesn't need to go anywhere else. In case uh, he doesn't find the answers within one madhab, then the doors are not closed. The doors are not closed. In that case, not I, uh, the fuqah of the past already, often we find if I keep mentioning something, we have nothing on about this in our madhab, but I found this in the madhab of so-and-so. The rules of our madhab have no problem with that. And then migration from one madhab to the other, you know, in cases of need, just about all the fuqah have said that it is permissible. Just about all the fuqah have said that it is permissible. A madhab is not a jail that's designed to hold one in. So in this regard here, the same will apply. When we find the answers within one madhab, for example, let's say, we find, and this is pertinent in this regard here, you know, what happens if we have a potentially harmful medication that needs to be taken? Mm. There's, a, there's a, a, a medication and it contains a poisonous substance. 
you can see the, the, the parallels between where we are and uh, you know, uh, the situation. So you have a potentially poisonous substance. What do we do? Do we say yes or do we say no? What do we do? I would like in this regard to quote, I follow the Shafi'i Madhab. I start within the Shafi'i Madhab, so I go to Kitabul Um, and I find Imam Shafi stating the following. In Shariba Dawa and Fihi Babu Sumum. If a person consumes a medication that contains uh, a number of poisonous substances, this happens. Arsenic and things like that are sometimes used uh, for medical purposes. So, in Shariba Dawa and Fihi Babu Sumum. Then Imam Shafi goes on to say, and this is the, the dominant outcome. Predominantly what happens is that you say, say, you don't die. Predominantly, predominantly means what? We'll come back to that in a moment. There's no sin in taking that medication. You can take that medication. So he says, what should you consider? Do more people survive or more people die? When more people die, then don't take it. When more people survive, then you take it. This is efficacy that we are speaking of here. This is a statistical uh, tool that is used to determine is it going to be good or is it going to be bad? And this goes back all of 1,200 years already. So if I find the answer in, in, in the literature of my method, then I work with that. Um, exactly what that statistical level should be, uh, you know, that uh, it can be used, a potentially harmful substance can then be used. Is it exactly 50%? Some folk have the view that it's exactly 50%. So 51, 52 will mean I can use it. And others, like Ibn Hajar, have the view that, no, it's a more notional uh, uh, a moving barrier. It's not specifically 50. Whatever that might be, things that if I find the answers in my madhab, then I give it from there. If not, and I have to save a life, it doesn't matter for which madhab I take it in order to save a life. Khair, Jazakumullah khair. And then, um, with regards to formulating this view of the permissibility of vaccines, and we, we still want to analyze that a bit further, um, what... What would it be based on seeing that? Well, I've said before, yes? on, can I just um, while Dr. Shamim was speaking, uh, you yes. saw the comments coming up and I saw the comments coming up. Yes. And I just thought to myself, I say, people, you are listening to Dr. Shamim speaking now. This is what I've been exposed to for the past while. And when I say that I have confidence in a person, if I say mm. that I repose confidence in the expertise of a person, people can understand why. Now you can understand why is it that we do trust these individuals. We are proud, as you said, we are proud to have people like this. And I believe that there are others like this in our community as well. I want to specifically mention the fact that within, uh, uh, you know, the fight against COVID, Muslims, alhamdulillah, I think are probably overrepresented uh, in terms of the percentage of the population that we form. And when I look around and I see the names of our doctors at the forefront, at the cutting edge, what's happening there. And I'm proud to say that no, these are the youth of our community. Yeah, no, it was a bit of a shock for me, Malana, because when I when I came to discover who Dr. Shamim really was, and all along he's, he's a Musalli standing behind me at the Mobile Majid, where I'm Khatib, I was thinking, subhanAllah, I really need to up my game now because uh, these experts are, are going to be critiquing me. But mashallah, uh, it, we really, it, it, is, it is a source of pride that, you know, not only, we, we don't have to go to the past and keep on speaking about, uh, Ibn Sina and Ibn Rushd and their contributions. We can look into our own communities today and see our brothers and sisters on the forefront of, uh, you know, such an important um, situation like the COVID-19 pandemic and the response to that. Um, Molina, with well, regards to the... Before, sorry, Molina, I'm, I'm this all the time, but I want to add to that. I want to send a message to parents mm -hmm. and to the youth, high school students, university students. 
you know, uh, you are studying right now, you have a career ahead of you, um, this is what your career should be. Whatever you decide to take up, make it something whereby you can serve the broader public. As a Muslim, whichever field you went to, you carry the flag of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with you. And that flag is the one that says, Khayrun nasi anfa'uhum This the people are those who are most beneficial to mankind. It doesn't matter whether that person is a Muslim or a non-Muslim. Be beneficial. Take the benefit. Rasulullah came as Rahmatul Lil Alameen. Merciful, not just all mankind, everything in existence, everything in creation. So, whichever field, whether you're going to be a teacher, whether you're going to be a doctor, whether you're going to be a, a carpenter, wherever you might be, each one of us has the potential of being Khayrun Nas and Fa'umin Nas, of being the type of person that's of benefit to mankind. Uh, since we are speaking about Dr. Shamim, like I said at the beginning of this panel, this was actually an unexpected uh, appearance from him. His official appearance is supposed to be on this Tuesday night. It is still going to be this Tuesday evening at 8, inshallah. Uh, do join us. You have to make sure that you subscribe so that you can be alerted as to the programs and the like. And uh, Dr. Shamim, as well as Dr. Tasneem Suleiman, who's also, subhanAllah, uh, done amazing work in, in relation to uh, COVID-19 and the study on the virus itself. Uh, but more about that on Tuesday night, inshallah. Uh, the question at hand is, you know, the vaccines, we, 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 we definitely don't know the long-term effects. Dr. Shamim, am I right? We don't know the long-term effects yet because we haven't been exposed to it that long. Okay, so in light of that fact, um, how does that affect the hukum in terms of permissibility or recommendation of the vaccine, Molina? Um, there are things that we know and things that we don't know. And things that we don't know, we take an expert uh, opinion and then we go and, and we trust in Allah Ta'ala to have the best outcome. Um, but before we answer this question of the vaccine, just uh, hold back for a moment and say, do we ever consider this uh, a similar set of uh, uh, questions around anything else that we take? Uh, those who are consuming uh, 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 drugs and alcohol definitely are not doing that. Those who are consuming hmm. other types of medications, you know, whether it is Panado, Atkado, whatever it might be, they know that there are going to be side effects they consume, they continue to consume. Um, there are so many other things. Also, you know, the problem, I, I, I'm sure you've got the ivermectin question line up in some way, but even those that are taking ivermectin for this moment don't laugh like that. <laughs> even those that are taking, and we have, no, I mean, we're not, going to, we're not going to tell people don't take that. However, even there are uh, uh, questions are asked around the safety of it. And, you know, when it is, uh, we, uh, let me just digress for a quick moment and say that one of the arguments against vaccinations that we have seen is that a few people have died of it, or rather, not of it. That, that creates a causative relationship. A few people have died after being vaccinated, which means it could have been any other cause. Um, some or the other, we are focusing upon six people, seven people, and not focusing upon the 12 or 15 million people that have been vaccinated already and are surviving. So it seems sometimes we are, you know, cherry picking the evidence for a foregone conclusion already. We've already decided it shouldn't be. And then we consider that uh, 10 million are not enough, but the six that have died. We even have evidence. And it's not difficult. Go on Google and just put ivermectin and death and the articles will start showing up, going back to all the way to 19, uh, somewhere in the 1990s. So not... Uh, you know, uh, uh, originated today or forged today and so on. So if we ask the same questions about every type of uh, medication, we will probably stop taking medication altogether. However, in this regard, um, I want to say, and I'm not going to speak about it, I'll ask Dr. Shemin to speak about it, how 
uh, vaccine technology has improved from the days of Edward Janet where we are today. I would suppose that the fatawa that were given on smallpox vaccines by the great muftis back then, you know, those vaccines were much less safe than the vaccines that we have now. We have advanced to such an extent that we are able now to actually, you know, take out the, 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 the something out of the adenovirus, load it with something else, and do the necessary, this is very important, do the necessary tests to make sure that it will not harm, you know, all those three levels of uh, phases and and, and before the, 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 the three phases of test, tests on animals, tests on various different subjects. I don't think this was ever done in the past to the same extent. So the level of safety, uh, set efficacy aside for a moment, the level of safety, the safety uh, uh, checks and, and, and balances in place here are of an el- a level unprecedented and unequal elsewhere. Dr. Shamim will speak further about it, inshallah. Bismillah. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, gonna go too deep into the topic because I think that's one of the themes that's going to be covered on Tuesday uh, but what Inshallah. I'm going to focus on is providing the data to support uh, uh, some of the answers that Molana gave to your question uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and and to 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 start uh, with uh, safety the the we are dealing with two different systems right now right we're dealing with the one that is present in the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and the Oxford AstraZeneca one which is what we call a recombinant viral vector system. Like Molana said, we're using a virus that is uh, that is not active anymore to carry uh, a piece of the vaccine into the human cell. And then we do, we're dealing with uh, what we call the mRNA uh, vaccine, which is basically a piece of uh, a message or a code that is normally produced in your nucleus, uh, which is the the, 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 the the capsule that contains your genetic material inside the cell. So that message then leaves that capsule that contains your genetic material, goes inside uh, the, 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 the cell, and that's where it, make, it makes the, the protein that uh, will then, you know, uh, be used to make uh, other cells uh, that will be used for different processes inside the human body, right? Uh, so those two vaccines, uh, the mRNA is very recent. The viral uh, recombinant vector is not as recent as people may think it is. Uh, it has actually already been used in trial, which means that it has been administered and injected in humans more than 10 years ago. And one of the main uh, vaccine uh, concepts that's based using the adenovirus vector, which is the one that we use right now for the Chadox vac- for the for the COVID vaccine, uh, is a- a HIV vaccine programs. A lot of them have been using this, and the safety of uh, these uh, these uh, these uh, vectors have already been proven. Uh, and after 10 years of having received that vaccine, uh, nothing has happened to these people that resulted from the use of this vaccine. Uh, now, with the actual vaccine that we're using, both the mRNA and the, uh, and the recombinant viral vector would have been in trial right now for about close to a year in, in April from the time this vaccine was developed. And uh, again, I don't want to take away from what's going to be discussed on Tuesday, but the vaccine technology that has been used right now doesn't start from the time we discovered the new virus that's causing COVID-19. It started in 2003 when we had the first virus that was called SARS-CoV at the time because we never knew if we were going to experience a number two. 
right? Mm. So mm. from 2003, when we first experienced that, carrying forward to 2009, where we experienced what we call MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory uh, uh, Virus, uh, virus, they have data that, uh, that, have been, that have been developed and that have been uh, 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 generated from studying the immune response to those virus to know uh, what type of reaction we need inside the body to fight them through either in vitro experiment where we expose them to cells inside test tube or in animal where we actually inject animal with the virus and see how the body responds after they've either received a vaccine or you know some form of, uh, of other administration. Uh, there are work along this line that has already been in development since 2003. So, so uh, you you actually have personal experience of this, uh, Dr. Shamim. Am I right? You're actually one of the people working on this on these projects. Uh, yes, correct. So right now we are we are we are based working on the trials of two vaccines in South Africa. Uh, it was the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, where the findings were released uh, lately, uh, and we have the Novavax, which is also uh, another vaccine that is showing some form of efficacy against the uh, progression to severe disease and hospitalization uh, in people with COVID-19. So, uh, inshallah, uh, we will have more data available very soon on the efficacy of both of these uh, vaccines. And uh, that will guide us, uh, inshallah, to choose the right one uh, for our context, because we also need to understand that uh, not every vaccine is as practical to roll out, because, for example, the Pfizer and the Moderna requires uh, storage conditions that are unfortunately uh, not easily met in places like South Africa and Africa in general. So uh, uh, there are safety net that I'm going to cover uh, mm -hmm. in our talk on Tuesday regarding Inshallah. what happened once we have been injected with the vaccine. And we all look forward to that discussion with Dr. Shamim and Dr. Tasneem. Inshallah, very, very important information. That is going to be, I can see, I'm going to be out of my league with the science on that discussion. Uh, but perhaps Malina can assist me on that, uh, Inshallah. Malina, now, uh, what are the opinions of the other muftis around the world in South Africa and so forth? Are we looking at general permissibility in terms of just halal, mubah? Or are we looking at mustahab? And are there exceptions to this? Like, do they do do the ahkam change for different subgroups like the elderly and so on? Um, can you shed some light on that, Min Fadlikum? Um, look, it's not an easy thing to speak for other muftis. They will probably in due time come out with their fatawa. Some some ulama have already pronounced their fatawa. Uh, some mm. have decided to hold back until we have greater clarity. And uh, as the doctors have brought on uh, a notice several times, we are learning on the job. Things are happening mm. and every day we have to adjust uh, uh, according to the degrees of the information. So uh, most of our other muftis, I was in a, in a discussion with uh, some of them today, and uh, they prefer to hold on until such time that they have a clear picture. And then the fatawa, I suppose in the next week or two, many of the fatawa of the major darliftas of the country will probably be published as well. Um, uh, as we did mention, some did speak already, mostly on the negative side. As far as the rest of the Muslim world is concerned, uh, we have history, of course, the, the, the previous uh, uh, 
instances of uh, uh, smallpox and polio, etc. And we spoke a lot of that. We're not going to go back to that for this present moment. Um, the major fatwa-giving bodies in the world, the major fatwa-giving bodies in the world, such as Al Azhar and the Dhamdi of Egypt and Egypt's uh, uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, mm. um, Fatwa Council, the Emirates Fatwa Council, the International Union of Muslim Scholars, independent organization, uh, all of these have given fatwa at its range. They range between basic permissibility. So some of them going to the extent that says that the person that fears it for himself, uh, this is mm. Egypt's fatwa. The person that fears it for himself, he, for him it is not just uh, uh, permissible and not even just encouraged. It becomes obligatory for that person to take it. Uh, most of mm. the fatwa state permissibility. Some go on, and then of course some of them might categorize it for certain uh, groups of people. Um, it's interesting to note, and someone will probably remark about this. When you speak about the UAE Fatwa Council, when you speak about uh, Saudi Arabia's Fatwa Council, then people will say, well, those are uh, government blackies and they're simply doing what the government is saying. But the antithesis of this, this bodies will be in organizations such as the International Union of Islamic mm. Scholars. They're not aligned with any particular government, and they have exactly the same position. Exactly the same position. Then we go east and we find that Malaysia's Fatwa Council has given a similar view. Um, we find that Indonesia, the Ulama Council has said it is permissible. They do have some reservations about some contents of the Sinovac, and uh, mm. that's because of the poor content in it. Um, we also have, uh, what is it now? Um, Singapore, the, the, uh, uh, the Islamic Religious Council, MUIS of Singapore also, uh, they said permissible, and they encourage it further. They encourage it as well. So we can expect a similar slew of fatawa in our country, some that will uh, say permissible, some that will say more than permissible is encouraged. Um, this will probably be the, uh, the line that our own fatwa from the NGC will take. Um, we recognize the fact that it's not just a matter of permissible or not permissible. What we need to achieve is that elusive herd immunity that is required. And, uh, you know, the difference between vaccines and any other form of medication is the other form of medication might cure you when you suffer the effects. It might even prophylactically stop you from getting the, the infection, but it will not bring about immunity. It will not eradicate disease. The only thing proven mm. to eradicate disease is vaccinations. And therefore, if it is our intention that our grandchildren should not have a repeat and our grandchildren should not one day continue suffering from COVID, then there's one way and one way only that Allah has given us. Allah Nabi Sallallahu tells us that for every disease that Allah has sent down, he has sent down a cure as well. Alimahu man alimahu, jahilahu man jahilahu. Those who know it, know it, and those who don't know it, don't know it. We have to find those who actually know it. And there's a track record here. Vaccines have worked well in the past. Uh, they have eradicated certain things. Sometimes attitudes and superstitions and assumptions in our community stand in the way of immediate uh, efficacy and eradication. Uh, those need to be addressed. Uh, it must be understood where they are coming from. At the end of the day, though, the disease needs to be eradicated. And for mm. that, mm. Uh, the fatawa will have to go beyond just permissibility in our perspective, beyond simple permissibility, to encouraging the public to go ahead and take it and not to fear. Not to fear, you know, uh, a lot of fear is being spread around. A lot of fear, mm. and much of that fear is unfounded fear. Uh, we've seen something that comes around that says, uh, this was from Israel, some of the Orthodox rabbis saying that, you know, it will turn you into homosexual and it will turn you into... We are not going to fall prey to those kind of fears. What, whatever we do, we refuse to live in fear if the sources of fear 
Amir suppositions and uh, you know uh, assumptions. If there is a real cause of fear, then we will address that. If we find it to be a cause of fear, then we will act accordingly. Everything that I have seen thus far, I cannot find myself, I cannot bring myself to say that this is reason enough to say public be aware. The, the, the thing that we should fear is that the disease that has already killed 50,000 people in our country will continue killing. And then we'll find the days of the epidemics of old where 16,000 people were dying in a city on one day and eventually find uh, you know, a million people at the time when the world was only a few million, million people and they were eradicated. We cannot allow such things to happen. That is what we should fear. Everything else, I do not find that they uh, reflect well when it comes to reality. Um, so, you know, for the layman, it is it is one of those instances where people without any medical knowledge or without any sh Sharia knowledge, they sit left confused because there are some di dissenting voices out there, uh, albeit they few and far in between, but people want to know that the opinion that they are following that the official mufti of the Muslim Judicial Council was fair in his engagement. So tell us about the extent of research conducted in this matter. For example, uh, the the number of doctors who were consulted, um, were all the doctors consulted? You know, is it is it the representative of the IMA, the Islamic Muslim Medical Association? And um, did Mullah also consult some of those with differing views? You know, some of those doctors who are qualified, who do have some level of expertise, some, some people who are not doctors but call themselves scientists, for example, um, were they also consulted? Have you heard their opinions and their evidences as well? I'm not going to be able to give you a number of how many doctors were consulted, but I can say that consultation is ongoing between ourselves and the IMA. And, uh, you know, instead of speaking to one doctor here and one doctor there, um, there's a reason why, for example, we have the Muslim Judicial Council, uh, why in Johannesburg, the Matata, Jamiat al Ulama. Uh, there's a reason why, because professionals form themselves into bodies and those bodies speak mm. for them. So our engagement has been with the Islamic Medical Association. Um, there's an assumption that we are led by the nose by a small uh, cabal of uh, uh, salaried doctors who lead us by the nose and take us into uh, you know, very, very sinister areas. That is absolutely not true. And uh, the, the, the Islamic Medical Association has been our main uh, uh, area of, of right. consultation. Beyond them, even, the, as I said, the British Islamic Medical Association and others uh, elsewhere in the UK, personal uh, um, uh, friendships with uh, uh, medical people, physicians that go back many, many years, people that we have known and we have trusted and uh, mm. whose information we rely upon, it goes wide and both. However, the other side is the more important one that you ask about. Mm. Consultation is ongoing on this side. What about the other side? Early on in uh, in, uh, in this crisis, I suppose we are speaking of um, March last year, probably April. Allah Allah. Today. Um, I was contacted telephonically by a person um, who was a, is one of the prominent spokespersons for the other side. He needed to know, can he speak to me personally? I said, by all means, he called me and we had a chat. And uh, he told me at the time that he does not believe that uh, lockdown is the best way of going about doing it. Um, in terms of the sciences, he read it. Um, you know, it should be left uh, to run through society. And that's the best way of bringing about herd immunity. And herd immunity is what we should uh, be heading for. And uh, I let him speak for a while. And then I uh, uh, interjected and spoke and said, that, I know more or less the lines which you are speaking. Because prior to having 
uh, made the call that we did at the time, prior to having taken the decisions that we had to take, it was, it was, you know, I had to, it was an obligation that I had to at least read up as much as I could on both sides of this divide. On the one side, the, 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 uh, the theory that says, let's go lockdown. And the other way, the one says, let's let it run wild. Right now, we have the most perfect of sciences in front of us. Hindsight, we can look back and say which worked best. You know, would uh, um, open doors have been the best policy or not? Let's go to Sweden and see where eventually it was admitted that you know the wrong policies were followed. But that's what yeah. we want to go now. Speaking about the time when nothing uh, was known to us yet. So the person spoke to me and he gave his opinion. And I said to him that, look, as far as I can see, I am a layman as far as medical science and science mm -hmm. in general is concerned. I have to assess two points of view. I read one position and I read another position. I have to, at the end of the day, make a judgment as to which one of the two is more persuasive to me, which one is more powerful, which one uh, speaks to me the loudest and the most convincingly and gives me the greatest sense of comfort. And I have to make a call according to that. But if you're speaking to me, uh, you know, and asking me to say that you are right and the other one is wrong, I cannot do that. I can say what is more persuasive. So what I advise him at the time is that what we do in every other field, this happens in every professional field. You have a theory, you have an idea, uh, you know, what do you do about it? You publish a paper and submit it for peer review. You deliver yeah. it with a, an assembly of your peers who will be able to critique it. And this is part of the problem that we have. And it, come, it comes back to where we started from. Epistemically, epistemologically, there is a problem when a person elevates his opinion to the level of la yus al He cannot be asked about it. Not, not, mm. He's not questioned at all. And then we have right. the problem. There is a reason why there's such a thing as peer review. Because one person might have an idea. This happens all the time. But peer review is where we will, uh, you know, when his, when his peers will actually critique him, that's where we will be able to see. So my suggestion to him was present it at a conference, uh, publish it in a, in, in a, in a uh, respected scientific journal, and then we will know, you know, to which extent uh, it is uh, the correct view or not. So yeah. it brings me back to the point that we said, we cannot simply go according to every person who is or claims to be a scientist. Yes, I do respect the point that a person has a certain amount of learning in the field, whether it is formal or informal learning, that's a different matter. Whether it is certificated uh, with a degree or not, that's a different I respect the fact that a person has put time uh, into learning something. But when I have to make a decision for the broader community in light of the, uh, in light of the Sharia, then I can only do it within the limitations that are imposed upon me, and that is respecting expertise, recognizing expertise where it is and respecting it. Um, and that's how we've come to the point where we are. So, yes, there was engagement with another side. That same person, unfortunately, went about saying that the NBC rebuffed him and did not want to speak to him. This is the other side of the, the story, my own retelling of it. And uh, anyone uh, who's worried, who wants to know the person is could probably call me personally, I'll tell them. <laughs> I think I would rather leave that one. Uh, they, they have their own platforms. And I think, you know, subhanAllah, people were saying, uh, Monana, why didn't you have this one? Why didn't you have that one? And I kept on repeating that the idea behind this was not a debate between the views. It was to bring experts, renowned experts, uh, experts who, who, you know, actually authorities in their fields and get information from them that we can trust and rely on as uh, as a community and that was it it's it's you know people who have differing views they're welcome to take up their own platforms and and um, you know share their knowledge um with people who are willing to listen there um, well, now to, I, have to, I have to otherwise i'll forget this very very important point which one thing is 
respecting a person's integrity, whether he belongs to this side or the other side, that's not the point. The point that I want to make here is this, that uh, there's a certain version of events that's been told out there. A certain version of events that's absolutely unjust and untrue. What is that? Uh, somehow or the other, the doctors and the nurses that are serving in the ICUs, you know, people are risking their lives for protecting those who are near and dear to me and you. People who are researching on a daily basis. All those people, some or the other, have now been reinvented and given a new term. They've been completely over. They have become masculist. A person such as Dr. Salim, uh, you know, he's, he's called a masculine because of the uh, position that he takes. I think it mm. is hugely unjust. It is a travesty of justice that people can find it within themselves to make allegations of the sort. The very same people, and this is a very important point for the community you now, the person that I go to when I have a headache, the person when I go to when my, my wife needs to, uh, to deliver a baby and needs to have a cesarean section, the person I go to when I myself um, need to be hospitalized, uh, when my blood is too high, when my, whatever the case may be, those people that we trust with everything else, how come suddenly now we stop trusting those people? All those people, part and parcel of our community, the salt of the earth, the fabric of our society, that we trusted for every other medical exigency. Suddenly, those people have been reinvented into the monsters who are out to murder people in their thousands. That narrative must be addressed, and that narrative must be stopped in its tracks. It's a narrative which Allah can never ever be happy. So there is something very disturbing about it when you know the position taken by some of our brothers leads to outcomes such as this. Please, mm. at this moment. I say to my colleagues, I say to my students, I say, I say to the broader community, as the poet says, Do not write, and I would add to it, do not say anything right now during this uh, crisis that you will not like to see on the day of Qiyamah. Don't make judgment, don't make statements about people that you wouldn't like to see appear on your book of, of, of these on the day of Qiyamah. We are going through an extremely sensitive period, but everything is being recorded. Everything the angels are with us. They are recording it. Allah will call you to to, uh, to 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 answer for every allegation that you've made. Whether you accuse someone of taking money, a certain person made a claim that organizations. He made this claim, this claim publicly on WhatsApp. Organizations are taking millions of rands. Individuals are taking or oh, the paltry sum of ten thousand rands. That's what he did mention in that regard in order to do certain things. And uh, we invited him to our offices to explain to us how did you uh, receive this information. And of course, that's when when they do not reach out. Most of them do not even write their names beneath the allegations that they make. Remember, Allah is recording, the angels are recording, and you will be called to answer for each and every one of those allegations. Yes, indeed, we do have to be careful of what we say, and uh, the tongue is a very dangerous thing. Manana, in relation to this, and I just want to also explain to the viewers and the listeners, Dr. Shamim is not... Uh, just, you know, he looks all pretty there at the bottom of the screen, mashallah. He's here for a very important reason, and that is to make sure that whatever uh, Manata mentions and uh, has to do with the research that crosses his field of expertise, that, you know, we are on the straight and narrow here. We don't do, make any blunders, but he's our special guest for Tuesday evening. Dr. Shamim, you, you had a comment? Bismillah. Yes, I, I just want to provide some more uh, clarification regarding, you know, your question uh, uh, to Molana regarding uh, what are the evidences uh, that, uh, mm -hmm. that and, and who are the people that Molana is consulting and is trusting, you know, to get an, an informed judgment regarding everything that goes to do with vaccine uh, that we're talking about now. Right. Uh, 
and, and I want to use uh, two other um, more closer to home Islamic uh, uh, issues uh, regarding COVID-19. The first one is, uh, uh, and, and, and I'm going with what I've heard from the community, right, is regarding uh, putting the body uh, in plastic bags before burning. So uh, a lot of people say, why do we do that? Because, you know, the person is dead. The person is not breathing anymore. Uh, you know, there is nothing that's going to come out of the nose, of the mouth. But what we have found out from studies that we have done in South Africa, and that mm. has been reported across several places in the world, is that even after death, when you take a swab from the nose of the person, you can still see and detect viruses that are wow. present there. And not only are they present for a long period uh, after the infection of the person, and even, uh, you know, like after death, we can still get them there. Uh, but they they also uh, viable, which means that they can infect people. Uh, there are uh, studies that have been done where there are minimally uh, invasive uh, autopsies for the use of biopsies that have been performed uh, in, uh, in 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 different parts of the world, where they have seen that even of the demise, there are virus that are still present in the lung that could still infect people if it could find its way out of the body. So because there is evidence, even if the risk of this being minimal, because there is evidence that somebody, that two, three, four, or five people, it may not be many people, if there is any significant evidence that uh, you know there is a risk for people to be infected, we have to go with what's right. That's one thing. Now, with regard to uh, the closure of not only masjid, but a lot of, uh, you know, religious spaces, uh, the churches, the synagogues, the temples, mm, uh, mm. Uh, and, and why uh, was that done? So the, the science behind transmission is still evolving, you know. We still don't know whether COVID-19 is something that can be acquired through breathing, uh, you know, right. like uh, aerosols or droplets that somebody have expelled from his or her body. We don't mm. have evidence of that yet. But what right. we do have evidence of is most people who get infection, in infection with SARS-CoV-2 and, and, and develop COVID-19, are infected through what we call the fomite way. The fomite way is basically when you talk, sometimes when you cough, when you sneeze, mm. or mm. even when you breathe deep in and out, you have particles that come out of your respiratory uh, openings, which are your mouth and your nose. And these then can find their way on any surfaces that they will fall on. Be it the member in the masjid, you know, be it the bench in the church, be it the tap at the wadukana, you know. Mm. And even the simple concept of like making wudu and like washing your nose, you know, you have droplets and aerosols that are leaving your nose and that are, you know, like adhering to the tiles in the in the in the in the in the wedukana or even on the top. And after you, you have somebody else coming and touching that very same surface. And there yeah. are evidence here that this is the main way uh, through which we have infection and through which people get infected. So this is 
what guides us to make inferences and cause judgment on what is needed for infection control, what is needed to prevent the spread, what do we need to put in vaccine. It's all evidence-based. It's based on what we've studied. We have controls for this to make sure that what we are finding are real and not due to chance. Uh, and, and these are things that have been repeated from country to country. It's not just one person who has done the research and who is trying to, 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 to post on his idea and make everybody buy in to what his logic and what his findings are. It's, it's peer-reviewed and it's also replicated across different places. So this mm. is how much trust uh, we as scientists place in evidence that is put in front of us. One, there is the rigor of the process, and two, is the replication of the similar testing that goes to answering the question that you have and prove that everywhere else you're coming to the same evidence. Right. Okay. Shukran so much, uh, Dr. Shamim. Uh, Molana, with regards to our yeah. Islam and our legacy, our Torah, we do have uh, people expressing that, you know, resorting to these so-called Western medicines and resorting to uh, the vaccines and so on is sort of like an abandonment of one's fitra. We should allow uh, herd immunity to take place. Um, you know, you should resort to the sunnah, you should go to dates and honey and, and the natural cure, so to speak. Um, what What's your view in regards to this particular sentiment? Um, are we doing something wrong by resorting to a vaccine if we are Muslim? I think the first question, the first thing that's wrong about the question is labeling medicine as Western. Um, mm. I don't think medicine has any provenance. It has no country. It doesn't belong to any nation. Uh, medicine started back, uh, you know, it goes back as far as humans go back, probably. And then, you know, different civilizations carried the flag of, of uh, medical advancement at different times. And I think for, you know, well over 500 to 1,000 years, we Muslims were the leaders of the world. And at that time, I suppose the rest of the world were probably speaking about Islamic or Arabic medicine. And uh, then, you know, the wheel of history turns. We find ourselves in the post-colonial period now where we are no longer what we used to be. So our, uh, uh, our worldview changes and we start looking at things. And something which was our own legacy that had been taken yeah. over by us and developed from there onwards, now we disavow the same legacy. It was part of its human legacy. This is what Rasulullah means when he says that for every disease there is a cure. Those who know it, know it, and those who don't know it, don't know it. I'd like to mention a little story in this regard. Our mother, Umm al-Mu'min, Sayyidah Aisha, radiallahu anha. Her nephew was a pupil as well, Urwa. And he asked her something and he says, you know, Umm al-Mu'minin, I want to ask you something. And say, okay, ask what you want He says, look, I know in terms of ilm of deen, in terms of knowledge, I can understand why you are so learned. After all, you're the wife of Rasulullah You learned what you learned from him. And uh, who was more learned in deen than him that I understand? And I also understand your expertise in the field of poetry and genealogy of the Arabs. Because you're the daughter of Abu Bakr. And who was a greater expert in those things than him? But how did you become such an expert on things medical? How do you know, you know how to treat this illness and that illness and... How did you, where did you learn all of this? Because there's no one in the family who is uh, known to, to have been a doctor. So she says, and listen to what she says, 
كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم رجلا مسقاما رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم was a person who used to fall ill very often and physicians doctors from all over the Arabian Peninsula would come to treat him in those illnesses that he would have and from their treatments which they gave him I learned myself and that's how I know so much about this is Rasulullah Rasulullah calling for doctors to come and treat him to the extent that his wife and our mother becomes a virgin doctor from there in Rasulullah there's a beautiful example and a beautiful example is one of balance the one of balance look Allah Ta'ala could have made him the richest of men the most uh, healthiest of men that never needs a doctor no he lived in this world to show us how we should conduct ourselves in this world. He suffered on account of, uh, so, so that we can learn. Uh, what do we do to his legacy when we say, no, I will not take medication. He called for doctors to treat him, for doctors mm. to treat him. I said, I don't want to. So that's very much out of keeping with the Sunnah of Rasulullah. That is not the fitrah. It's exactly the opposite of what the fitrah is. Jazakumullah khairan. Now, Malina, there is, uh, Dr. Shamim, you, 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 you look like you end up there for a moment. One second. Bismillah. Yes. Uh, yes, uh, I, I just want to, to put something in perspective, I think, just to add on to what Maulana said. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, people will, will, will always bring in the question of why do we need vaccine, uh, 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 as your question, uh, you know, like, uh, touch on earlier. Why why do we not stick to, to the Sunnah and why do we not stick to, to you know, like, uh, more trusted and more traditional and, you know, things that come from, from like, long history of use. And, uh, and, uh, and not necessarily efficacy, but uh, the one thing that people need to also put in perspective is that the way of life of people has changed. So we do know that before, travel as it is right now was not as easy and as accessible, right? Okay. So the level of herd immunity that happened in a lot of population that were very segregated at the time wherever they were you know europe africa uh you know australia and i mean boat and 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 and, and travel uh, on land uh, by camel and horses were, were 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 the more predominant form at the time which tells you how little travel existed so at the time herd immunity uh, in the context of very severe diseases could only be reached when a certain community has been affected to the extent where most people have been infected, have developed immunity to the to the to the microbe that was killing them, and the other people who were you know at risk of that have actually been infected and have that and have passed away. So now you don't have any more people who are at risk of actually uh, you know getting infected again mm. because you mm. have a, a herd immunity and at the same time because there is no more people infected, the, the microbe that was uh, being uh, propagated in that community dies with it. But now, with the advent of global travel by plane, by, uh, by cruise mm. ship, uh, it, it is so easy for something to spread. And you cannot wow. actually wait to reach that level of herd immunity that would normally be naturally conferred if you did not have a vaccine against what you're dealing with. So because mm. of the behavior of people, we have to change the behavior uh, that we normally uh, 
idea to to prevent the microbe from spreading. And that's through the use of technology. Technology has meant that now people travel more, which then also translates in the virus or the microbes spreading more. How can you complain that we are using technology now in the form of a new vaccine to fight what has been started by this? Mm, a G point. I'd like to add something. Uh, people think we should take from nature, you know, and, and nature, I mean, uh, I'm very much for something like this. Uh, take some honey and take a lemon and, uh, you know, uh, boil water and drink it. It's a very good thing. It keeps your immune system uh, into action and alhamdulillah, that works uh, for many illnesses and so on. Um, but what is nature? It's a bit of a philosophical question. So what is nature? Is nature only nature when I take the whole lemon and I squeeze it out and take that lemon juice? Is that only nature? Or when I take the distilled form of the lemon? Uh, when Manana, I, I just ask that Manana, move the microphone to the front in Fadlikum. It's just creating some noise. It's on the other side. That's the side. There we go. Bismillah. Shukla. All right. Are we okay now? That's fine. Bismillah. Is it okay? Yeah. Sorry, right and left uh, seems to be that. An answer for the question I thought, what is nature? So when I take honey raw from nature, you call that nature. When I take the lemon from nature, I call that nature. I want to ask something. Where does the adenovirus come from? It comes from nature. It exists within nature itself. We are just employing nature once again. It's not that someone went into a lab and created an adenovirus. Allah created the adenovirus. It is part and parcel of what Allah created, and what Allah created is nature in itself. So, uh, and then there's a second part of this that I want to say, and that is that, إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَا ظَلُومٌ Mankind is very, very unjust and very ungrateful. Those two things, unjust and ungrateful. You know, the tafsir of this will be given by a person who is not a mufassir, Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud wrote a book called Civilization and His, Civilization and His Malcontents or Discontents or something. The theme of that book goes something like this. You know, when we're living a very, very frugal and very uh, close to nature life, in others, I got my little farm and I'm planting potatoes and I'm living on the, and live close to nature, then I become what? I'm restless. No, I don't want to be here. I want to go to the city. And I want to make a lot of money. Then I go to the city and I start earning and I become rich. And then I say, no, I want to go back to the farm again. So if civilization grows and, you know, advancement comes, then we say, no, no, we're on the simple life again. And then we have the simple life. And after a few years, I want to go back to uh, the civilization again so it's a cycle of this world which we're inevitably going to be uh, mm. you know relating between them uh, it has to do with what exactly do we really view as nature everything in Allah's creation is nature subhanallah I mean even even the the I mean there's different theories as to the origin of the virus but it inevitably it inevitably comes down to encroaching on the environment you know uh, so really an amazing point there and that herd immunity point as well uh, generally speaking we only think of herd immunity as far as like South Africans are concerned but we forget that uh, one day we heard that there was a virus spreading in China and be you know a hop skip a skip and a jump later we were under lockdown and that was just so quick no, no, no. Um, there is a perception, and I think I don't know if this was addressed before on a public platform, but I think it's it's high time that we do address this perception. There's a perception among society that the Muslim Judicial Council uh, simply just rubber stamps any government decision, and of course the government is uh, the government in power is the uh, African National Congress. Is there any truth to this statement? 
to what degree does the Sharia consider government decisions and how do the government's decisions affect your uh, opinions as a mufti of uh, the MJC? To a certain extent, we will always have to live within the laws imposed by the government. That is there. Having said that, I have thus far not come across a single situation where government brings any pressure to bear upon anyone for that matter. In our circles, say go this direction or go that direction. At most, uh, you know, uh, when it's time for votes, they probably come canvassing for votes. And uh, they don't always live up to their promises. We know that uh, uh, the voting time is when the biggest whopping lies are told. And uh, you never get uh, given what you promised. But when it comes to, does government ever ask us to give fatwas this way or that way or the other? I've been associated with the fatwa committee of the MJC for all of uh, 30 years almost now. 25, 30 years. And in all of that time, I cannot remember a single instance where government put pressure upon us to say, go this way or go that way. However, in the minds of people out there, people are quick to jump to conclusions and, and make certain judgments and say, well, they're just doing this to please the government, doing that. People must understand one thing. This work that we have to do, this is not a popularity contest. This is not a credibility contest. Someone wrote, wrote to me actually say, you've destroyed your own credibility by being too arrogant. You don't want to. Anyway, let me just state this. Credibility comes from Allah Ta'ala. Credibility doesn't come from man. But before credibility, our responsibility, we live with this responsibility. We live with responsibility that we are answerable to Allah Ta'ala. With a consciousness that every step of the way, everything that is, the moment I speak and say this is halal, and this is haram, I've spoken for Allah Ta'ala. I've spoken for, and, and Allah hears what I speak, and I'm answerable to Him. So as I've said to others before, um, whenever a fatwa needs to be given, and I arrive at, an, uh, uh, at a conclusion after research, I arrive at a conclusion. There's one barrier that I need to cross thereafter. Only one barrier. And that barrier is I ask myself, am I prepared to face my Allah on this point here? Having said this to the community, am I prepared to face Allah and say, Allah, I've done the best that I could for your sake, in all honesty. If I cross that barrier, if that barrier is crossed, then it doesn't matter to me what's, who says it. Then you can say, well, you're doing this to please the government. Then you can say that someone is paying you a lot of money. People can say what they wish thereafter. If only that which is between me and Allah flourishes, then all that which is between me and the rest of the world can go to perdition for all that I care. If Ya Allah, if I have your approval, then nothing else matters anymore. Everything on earth on earth is just earth. It's only Allah that we need to please. So I cannot stop people from making these allegations. I can say no, there is no pressure. We do not abide uh, by government dicta. However, people will choose to believe or not to believe me. And that doesn't matter. All that matters is that I know that I've done the best that I can in the sight of Allah Ta'ala. Jazakumullah khairan. That brings us to the final of uh, uh, the final question of our program. Not now. That one was the final question of our program. Alhamdulillah. Yes, it was a, a grueling one hour forty five minutes. But we decided, you know what? Let's just get everything out there and discuss everything that we can as far as this question is concerned. Because this, as we know, this topic is a very very important one, not just to our community, but around the world, not just for Muslims 
but for every single human being right now. So we need all the guidance and information that we can get. And we are so fortunate to get them from uh, reliable and trustworthy sources such as our panelists here. And we thank them for the time. No one's getting paid to be here. No one's getting... Uh, you know, any endorsement or any certificate or any recognition uh, to be on this platform and to inform the community. This is completely voluntary. So, Jazakumullah khairan. Any closing remarks from yourself, Dr. Shamim? We have about 60 seconds for you, and then I'll hand over to Manana Taha, and then we'll conclude uh, on that. Just, uh, just, just one remark uh, with regard to the question again you asked to Molana, uh, Molana about, uh, you know, uh, following the, the government uh, with regard mm -hmm. to, you know, the situation right now uh, for, for COVID-19 and vaccination uh, i just want to point out that like both the government and mola now are actually following the the expert who are the medical doctors who specialize mm. on actually mm. coming up with the biomedical intervention right now so it, it, it's uh it, it's just you know uh, uh the, the matter of fact that uh, that's the commonality there uh and, and also um uh, the, 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 I just want to make one point. Uh, I want to correct myself. Uh, I talked about MERS earlier. MERS stands for Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. It is caused by the coronavirus, uh, which is the family of virus that we're dealing with right now. Uh, I think I may have gotten the, the, the acronym wrong uh, earlier. I apologize for that. Uh, and uh, I just want to, uh, to, 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 to tell the people, and not touching on the science there, uh, today, uh, uh, when Molana uh, Sidiq called me uh, earlier uh, uh, after Juma, I was busy in the ICU. And, and this is something that I have been doing uh, far too many times uh, this year. I uh, was actually uh, taking the relatives of a very sick uh, woman uh, in ICU right now with COVID-19 uh, because uh, we were informed that she was critical. And, mm -hmm. and yalla, to see these people, uh, you know, seeing uh, their, their, their wife, their mother, after a month of not seeing her, uh, you know, in that bed, not moving, with tubes going in everywhere, and, yeah. you know, not being able to get any reaction from that person is absolutely horrible. And imagine that you call by people to tell you that, listen, we want you to come because you think that your wife, that your mother is critical. You know, the, 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 the pain that I see on these people's face, Yalla, every day when I read uh, my Salah, when I make Dua, I, 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 I thank Allah for sparing my parents right now and my family mm -hmm. uh, from, from this because where they are, we don't have COVID pro pro uh, propagated, uh, you know, propagating in the community. And, and, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I really wish that people could understand that and that we really need to make an effort to stop that because if you may not have been hurt, have been impacted by having somebody close to you, you know, suffering from this and going through this, it, it is absolutely horrible. It is heartbreaking. And, and, and I can tell you from speaking to, to, to healthcare workers, whether it's nurses, whether it's, it's clinicians, uh, you know, uh, dealing with that, it's, it's, it's draining. It's, uh, it's mentally uh, exhausting. To not be able to do anything, we are not used to these types of environment normally. Mm -hmm. Our relationship with the family of, of people who are under our care is very different. And right now, uh, as Molana said, there are people, I'm not a clinician, I am in the hospital, uh, not as often as them, but they are working hard. 
and 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 it's something that everybody wants to get out of. It, it's not mm. something that we are enjoying. You know, it's not an attention that we're enjoying right now. I think, like everybody else, we just want to get back to some form of normality. And and inshallah, the only way that we can reach that stage is if people understand what is needed uh, to to get to that point. And part mm. of these are changes in our behavior, uh, but because we've realized now that this is not enough uh, for economic reasons, for social reasons, for any other reason, we have come up with biomedical interventions that have been tested in terms of safety and efficacy. And we are hoping, inshallah, we put our trust uh, in Allah to guide us to choose the best Amen. way forward for this. And uh, we, as you can see with the last report uh, from the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, even if there was very limited uh, data regarding efficacy, uh, you know, for that vaccine, we did not go ahead with that. The government shifted to a different plan. We are waiting for more data to reevaluate what is the purpose of this right now. And, and this is the only way that it's going to be done. There is nothing that's going to go against the rigor that comes with any form of biomedical intervention that will be put for the use in people in the general population. And that is With people such as yourself at the forefront, I feel a lot more comfortable, alhamdulillah. And I'm sure that our listeners and viewers would uh, share that sentiment. We are looking forward to seeing you on Tuesday night, Dr. Shamim, and learning from you some more. Uh, shukran so much for your time and your family. May Allah preserve you always. Malana, any last uh, comments from your side? Yeah, I think we, we've come full, uh, you know, full circle around here with Dr. Shamim's last point there, which you mentioned, that mm. it's not I as a, as the mufti or the government mm. who's calling the shots on this one here. This is very much, as he says, it's the science that's calling the, the shots. You can see it with AstraZeneca. Government mm. to roll out, scientists said no, and they had to do that. It's to me very much the reflection of the ayah that they recited right at the beginning. Mm. So Rasul is not here, but his inheritors are here. So the matter has to be referred to the ulama. If they refer to the ulama, and then refer to ulil amri minum, the people in charge, that's the government. Take it to the government, take it to the ulama, but who will go? Those who are able to assess the evidence, those mm. who are able to draw the right conclusions, those who are able to investigate and uh, interpret the data, all of us have to follow them in this regard. Yeah. And wherever they go, that's where Allah Sharia, that's the hukum of Allah. Allah's hukum will be where the doctors tell us it's it's the best and the most efficacious path for us. So that, um, that conclusion for Dr. Shamim was actually the cherry on top of it all. We all have to be led by the science in this regard. That science is not their invention. It's Allah's gift to mankind. Allah's gift to mankind, and we all should benefit from it without compunction. Barakallahu feekum. Uh, to the viewers, shukran so much for joining us. We know this was a long one. Do catch this in audio format on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts within the next couple of hours, inshallah. And do subscribe to the channel so that you can be notified of the upcoming programs, including our discussion on Tuesday night with Dr. Shamim and Dr. Tasneem Suleiman. That is a very important one as well. Probably one of the most important discussions that the public has been exposed to uh, at this level since the beginning uh, of the pandemic, I think, you know, for our community. So again, 
Much appreciated everyone. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept, keep us all safe, grant us afia. Wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammad subhanahu wa bihamdi subhanahu wa bihamdi. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiru kawana tubu ilayka.